Titus chapter two, Titus chapter, no, I'm sorry. That was last week. Titus chapter three, counting is hard. Titus chapter three, we are going to wrap up our sermon series going through the book of Titus. It's a short and sweet letter that I hope has been encouraging to you. And this morning, we're going to cover all of Titus chapter three. You know, last week, Brian did an excellent job showing us how grace works. We talked about how the grace of God has appeared in Christ and how God has saved us. He has rescued us, but grace not only saves us, it trains us. And it says how the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and how he redeemed us to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. And following on that theme of being zealous for good works, the theme of Titus chapter three is that we would live out the gospel through our devotion to good works. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, so let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The idea here is that our lives that have been transformed by the gospel would now bring glory to God through the way that we live. And so let me give you the main point this morning. We are called to live out the gospel through our devotion to good works. So we're gonna study all of chapter three this morning. It's a big passage of scripture. As always, I like to read the whole text before we get started. I'm gonna read a whole chapter of the Bible, but here's the deal. If you get bored, that's on you. It's the Bible, okay? So let's pay attention. Let's buckle up. This is Titus chapter three. Let's start in verse one. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works." These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer, even Paul needed a lawyer in a hurry sometimes, and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith, Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible chapter. Lord, even just reading it, there is so much here. 
This is such a rich and powerful passage of scripture. Lord, I'm humbled to have an opportunity to even talk about it. Lord, I just pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds to receive what you would teach us from this passage. Lord, we pray that you would conform us to the image of your son. That you would make us more like Christ, that we might glorify you more in our lives. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I'd like to show you from this passage is how it's framed. This passage tells us what it's all about by repeating something in the beginning of the passage, in the middle of the passage, and at the end of the passage. And what Paul says three times is to be devoted to good works. Be devoted to good works. I wanna show you the, the picture frame, if you will, that frames all of Titus chapter three. Look with me at verse one. He says, be ready, at the end of the verse, be ready for every good work. All right, verse one, be ready for every good work. Now skip down to verse eight. Verse eight, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now verse 14, end of the chapter. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. What are you devoted to today? What are you devoted to or what are you committed to? What is something that you have set your mind to that you are absolutely committed to doing in a steadfast way? Let me tell you something that me and my family have been very devoted to lately. And before you get excited, no, it's not that spiritual, maybe even the opposite a little bit. We have been devoted as Bush Gardens past members toward this thing they've been doing this summer called Passport to Summer. Maybe some of you guys know what we're talking about. Where the more you go, the more perks that you get. And we are complete suckers. So we saw, hey, if you come eight times, then you get free all day dining. And so there were times this summer where we were like, I don't even really feel like going, but we have to get that free all day dining. <laughs> Never mind the fact that we pay for the food when we go those eight times. So I'm sure they more than made their money's worth off of suckers like us, but we made it happen. So yesterday was the day. We finally, we went eight times, we cashed in. Yesterday was our all day dining uh, binge. Uh, and we, we, we affectionately named the day Fatter Day. Uh, instead of Saturday, because that's essentially what our goal was, what our mission was for that day. Too hard not to take advantage of these passes. And we ate a lot of great food, had a good time. I uh, was sitting there with Hannah. We get her the chocolate cake. And I had to, for the first two or three times, I'm like, all right, babe, you got to use your fork. Then I just gave up. I'm like, whatever. Right, this is why we're here. So next thing you know, she's like smearing chocolate frosting all over the table. The point is, if we can be devoted to such silly and trivial things as earning all day dining, let me suggest to you, as followers of Christ, more than anything else, we need to be devoted to good works. We need to be devoted to letting our light shine before others that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. This is a major theme throughout the book of Titus. This book is super practical. The Apostle Paul is deeply concerned that this church not just have the right doctrine, not just have the right information, but that they are transformed by it, that it changes their life, that they're devoted to good works. And why? Why is God concerned that we would be devoted to good works? For a few reasons. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in the sermon, our good works adorn the gospel. They make the gospel appear more attractive to the world around us. 
But I also want to point out something in verse 14. He says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. He wants us to be devoted to good works because there are people in need. I like the way that Martin Luther put it. He said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. There are people all around us in need. And as followers of Christ, we have this calling to pursue these good works out of love for others, out of love for others that are in urgent need. So this is the frame, this is the the picture frame that holds this whole chapter together, if you will, that we would be devoted to good works, that we would live out the gospel in our lives through our commitment to good works. And the rest of this chapter is gonna spell out a little bit more about what that looks like. The first thing he's going to show us about this commitment to good works is that we are to respect authority, to respect authority. This is one of the good works that he lays out for us in verse one. Look with me at verse one. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The first good work he mentions in particular is submission to leaders. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to our leaders. And now rulers and authorities, Paul is referring here to the government leaders in his society. So in the Roman Empire, mid-60s AD, uh, this would have been the leaders in Rome, the various leaders going all the way up to the emperor, which is Nero. If you know anything about Nero, feel free to Google him if you want. Uh, it's not hyperbole to say he's probably one of the worst human beings that ever lived. This guy would use Christians as human torches at his garden parties. He was a cruel and a wicked leader. Nevertheless, multiple times in scripture, knowing that he is in office, the Christians are told, submit to rulers and authorities. He says two things here. He says both be submissive and be obedient. I like to think of this as both the heart posture and the action. Be submissive is the heart posture. This means that toward the leaders that God has placed in our lives, we need to have both a submissive and a respectful heart posture toward our leaders. And then be obedient, which is the action. He's saying that as followers of Christ, we are not called to be rebels. We to be submissive. We are called to be obedient to the laws that have been placed over us. I say some of this as a teaser because next spring, in spring 2024, we're actually going to be doing a sermon series together where we're going to explore the relationship between Christianity and government. We're going to talk about things like how should a Christian think about things like politics and voting and things like that. And for no particular reason, I mean, uh, it's just a random time that we decided to do that next year. Um, There's no particular reason why. Um, But for now, as this has come up in the text, let's talk a little bit about both the why and the how. Why should Christians submit to our leaders? And then how, what does it look like? Well, first of all, first and foremost, we submit to our leaders because God put them there. Can you handle that? God put them there. This is what it says in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and get this, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus said the same thing to Pilate in John chapter 19. Pilate said to Jesus, do you realize that I could release you if I wanted to? And Jesus blew him off. He's like, you wouldn't have any authority unless it was given to you by my Father in heaven. In other words, God put Pilate there. 
God put Nero there. God put our president there. Can you handle that? Guys, that's what the word of God says, that the authorities that are in place are there because God placed them there. It doesn't matter if we like them or if we voted for them, or if we agree with them. The leaders that are in place are there by God's sovereign will. And for us as followers of Christ to be disrespectful or rebellious to our leaders is sin. So that's the why. We submit to our leaders because God has placed them there. But then how? What does that look like? We are to have a respectful heart. We are to have a respectful heart. We are to honor our leaders. Again, 1 Peter 2, he says, honor the emperor. He tells them, honor the guy that is putting your friends on stakes and burning them. Honor him. That's what he says. We honor our leaders. We pray for them. And he says, be obedient. This means that we obey our leaders. If you were to keep going in Romans 13, Paul singles out, pay your taxes. Obey the laws. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Guys, as followers of Christ, we are called to be respectful and we are called to be obedient to the leaders that God has placed over us. And here's why I've dug in a little bit and I've been pretty harsh on this point because I believe that one of the most common idols in the American church today is politics. And I'm not talking about a particular side or another. I think left, right, and center. We have a tendency to make an idol out of politics. We've got to be clear on what the word of God says and what it calls us to be as citizens of the nation that God has placed us in. But next, he tells us to pursue peace. He tells us to pursue peace. Verse two, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This means we are to be a people who pursues peace with others, not controversy. Pursue peace. And this comes in the context, again, of our relationship with our leaders, but we can apply these principles more broadly. He spells out for us what it looks like to be a people that pursue peace. First of all, he says, to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. From slander. We must refrain from gossip, but we must be people who speak in a way to edify and to encourage other people. He says, avoid quarreling. Don't be argumentative. Don't be always looking for a fight or picking a fight with somebody. He says, don't be quarrelsome. He says to be gentle, to show kindness, not to be harsh in how we treat others. Here's a good litmus test. Others should feel loved by you even when you have to rebuke them. Others should feel loved by you even when you do have to rebuke them. Finally, he says, show perfect courtesy toward other people. This means be considerate toward others. Put others' needs ahead of your own. Here's a good principle for us. We should speak in order to build others up, not to tear them down. As it says in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We are to be a people who speak in order to build up, to encourage, not to be quarrelsome or slanderous or gossips. But here's the deal, and this is where we need to make sure we're clear this morning. Paul doesn't tell us all of these things and say, you just need to be good for goodness sake as if God is this cosmic Santa Claus or anything. who's making his list and checking it twice. No, we are to be good as an overflow of the mercy that we've received in the gospel. 
So even as he begins to go after these good works that we are to do, he can't help himself. He has to rehearse the gospel. And that's what we're gonna see in the next few verses. He's gonna tell us to remember the gospel. Look at verses three through seven. Guys, this might be my favorite paragraph in the book of Titus. This paragraph is wonderful. I wish we could do a whole sermon just on this one paragraph, but let's get going. Verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life." This is a reminder of the gospel. And it begins with this reminder. Paul says, remember your past. He says, remember your past. Verse three, he tells them, look at what God saved you from. Look at where you were. And here's why he does this in this context. He's saying, be submissive to rulers and authorities. He's saying, pursue peace with other people. And he tells us the way that you do that is by remembering what God has saved you from. Remembering our sin is what humbles us. And as Christians, the reasons why we can often become self-righteous and judgmental toward others is because we've forgotten what we've been saved from. One commentator put it this way, only when we truly believe that apart from Christ, there is no more hope of heaven for us than there is for the worst sinner we meet. Can we minister the gospel to that one and others? Believing the leveling truths of the gospel creates a community where malice, envy, and infighting disappear, along with the need to measure our righteousness against one another. So how does he describe us before Christ? He says, we were foolish. This speaks of our minds. He means we were ignorant. We did not know the truth. We were disobedient. We were rebellious against God's commands. We were led astray. Some commandments say that, uh, some uh, translations rather, say that we were deceived. We were like Eve before the serpent. We have been deceived and tricked and duped by the evil one into doing his will. We were slaves to various passions. We were controlled by our sinful cravings and desires. Then finally, we were hated by others and hating one another, could not have healthy relationships, but they were broken. Guys, that's a bleak picture. That's a dark picture, but that's how the Bible describes us apart from Christ. This is how the Bible describes all of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. This is what God has saved us from, but he's about to tell us how God intervened. He starts by saying, remember your past, but then he says, remember God's mercy. Remember God's mercy. Verse four gets me every time. But... That's one of the best words in the Bible, y'all. Do you know that? All this horrible bad news, you're foolish, you're disobedient, you're hated, all these things, but it means it's not the end of the story. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, that's the gospel. When God's goodness appeared, and here's a fun one for you. When the loving kindness of God appeared, in the Greek, it's philanthropia. That sound familiar? 
philanthropy. It means love of humanity. When God's love for humanity appeared, that's Christ, he saved us. Again, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, meaning that there's nothing that we did to earn it or deserve it. It is a gift of mercy. I've heard it said before, salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. We are not saved by works. We are saved by God's mercy. Jonathan Edwards put it in a really powerful way. He said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We're saved not by works, but by mercy. In the midst of our darkness, God intervened. It reminds me of that famous passage in Ephesians chapter two where he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Does it end there? What's the next word? But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the gospel. That's the mercy of God intervening in our lives when we were dead, when we were enslaved to our sin, enslaved to the evil one, deceived into following the course of this world, mercy intervened, not by grace, not, well, yes, by grace, not by works, but by grace. Paul and Titus is gonna spell out what that looks like, how God intervened, how mercy saved us. Verse five, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. He's highlighting how the Holy Spirit is involved in the salvation process. He says that the Holy Spirit washes us. This speaks to spiritual cleansing. Our sin has left us filthy as it were, and the Holy Spirit cleanses us. He says, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that word a couple of weeks ago in 1 John about how God causes us to be born again through the gospel and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that God makes us a new creation in Christ through the gospel. All of these things are describing the reality that when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he gives us new life. He causes us to be born again. It's all a gift of God's mercy. He closes this paragraph by saying, so that being justified or being declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at this incredible reversal from verse three to verse seven. Think about it. You were foolish. You were disobedient. You were enslaved. You were hopelessly lost and hated. Now you're an heir, an heir of the hope of eternal life. Romans 8 says a co-heir with Christ himself. That's mercy. That's grace. That's grace that is unfathomable for us. That's what's offered to us in the gospel.
you know, as I was reflecting on this sermon, I decided that this might be a good week in light of the text to take a couple of minutes and share my story, uh, share my testimony of how God saved me. It's been a couple of years since I've done it from the pulpit and a lot of new folks have been coming with a new building. I thought it might be beneficial for me to share my story here about how God's mercy intervened in my life. Uh, I had the blessing of being raised in an awesome Christian home with parents that loved me uh, and taught me about the word of God and taught me about the gospel from a young age. I'm so grateful for that. I was raised going to church every Sunday, going to youth group every Wednesday, all of that stuff. Uh, but when I was 17, I was a knucklehead. I know that's just shocked to many of you because most 17 year olds are like, you know, the pinnacle of human wisdom. But, uh, but for me anyway, uh, I was a knucklehead and I didn't want anything to do with God anymore. Nothing to do with church. I was gonna do life my way. Uh, I was in a band and I was going to become a famous rock star. Uh, you can see how that turned out. Um, but I didn't need God, didn't need the church. I was gonna do my own thing. And I was living there for about three or four years. And I dove headfirst into a sinful, stupid, rebellious lifestyle. But God, but God, literally in the middle of the night one night, I woke up, I wasn't listening to a sermon, you know, wasn't at a prayer meeting, wasn't listening to a song. Literally, I wake up in the middle of the night one night and in an instant, just intense conviction came to my heart. And all I could think is, what are you doing? You know better. And all I could think to pray was, God, forgive me and God, change me. You know, and so at the time, this is important for the story, I was working at Mary Immaculate Hospital in Newport News. And so I'm up all night praying. So I'm half asleep driving to work the next day. Uh, so I'm going down 17. And you guys know to get to Mary Immaculate, you turn right on Denby Boulevard. I'm half asleep. So I missed the turn. I'm like, oh, great. So I got to do a U-turn. So I got to do a U-turn. And when, as I'm sitting in the lane waiting to do a U-turn, I look over and I notice a church I'd never noticed before, right next to the Harley Davidson dealership. You guys that have been at Coastal a while know that was the coastal, original Coastal Yorktown building in Grafton. It's like, okay, I'm gonna try that church out on Sunday, uh, just randomly. Oh, well, there's no such thing as random with a sovereign God, but you know what I mean? To me, it was random. So I'm sitting there waiting and I go into church the next week and the first person I see is Brian and I see the Briggs. And so for you guys that don't know, Brian was my youth pastor. And a lot of people are like, what? And you hear that? Yes, Brian was my youth pastor. So it's his fault, by the way, that I am the way I am. Um, <laughs> but just kidding. So, um, and I'm thinking, because Brian knew all about how I'd been living my life, my brain goes to, oh, great. Here we go. It was the exact opposite. They welcomed me in with open arms, had me sit with their family, took me to lunch afterward. That's a sermon for another day about how we treat our guests, right? Because people come in scared to death that they're gonna feel judged, get zapped by lightning, all that good stuff. That's a sermon for another day, but that's an important lesson to learn from that story. So I get there and uh, when it's time for the sermon, a guy gets up and says, hey, Pastor Sean was supposed to preach this morning, uh, but he came down with an illness late last night. Uh, he's not able to preach. We didn't have a backup plan. So we're gonna play this ser video sermon of Matt Chandler preaching on the prodigal son. And I'm sitting there and I gave my life to Christ and I've been a part of Coastal ever since. It was God's way of calling me to come home. And here's the best part of the story. I even, I'm saving the best for last. I talked to Pastor Sean years later. Turns out he was supposed to preach on tithing that week. Now, could God have saved my soul through a sermon on tithing? Absolutely, he could have. But I like to think that he, and me and Pastor Sean like to joke that God gave him the stomach flu to save me. Anyway, why do I share that story? Because I was once foolish. 
I was once disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various passions, and living in broken relationships, but God, but God intervened in my life. And I share that story because who knows, maybe someone missed a turn and they're here this morning. Let me tell you, man, there is, Richard Sibbs says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. There is no sin that is too big for the grace of God to forgive. There is no prodigal who has run too far for the father to save and to say, come home. So maybe that's you this morning. Let me encourage you to come running to Christ today. Maybe there's others of you who you are a Christian, but you've been praying for a prodigal in your life, in your family. Maybe there's a child or a spouse or a sibling or a friend that is far from God and it breaks your heart. Let me encourage you to never stop praying, never stop pleading for them. While there is breath in their lungs, it is not too late. Never stop praying. God's mercy can save them. So there's one last thing I'd like to show you from this text this morning. As we wanna make sure that we are a church shaped by the gospel, a church consumed by this mercy that we've received, we must be diligent to avoid distraction and division. That's what Paul is going to show us in verses nine through 11, that we must be careful to avoid distraction and division. Look with me at verse nine. Paul says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The point here is avoid foolish controversies, Paul says. Avoid foolish controversies. Now, the word avoid is very strong. It could be translated shun, completely abstain from, have nothing to do with foolish controversies. And he lays out what some of these foolish controversies are. Genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. He says this because they are unprofitable and they are worthless. Same thing he said to Timothy. He's telling both of his pastors this, so it's important. 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. In other words, this is what he's telling both of these young men, Timothy and Titus. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get bogged down in controversies about things that really don't matter. What are a few foolish controversies that we as followers of Christ must avoid? Let me give you just a few thoughts here. One is a place where foolish controversies happen, and one is a subject matter of foolish controversy. Here's a thought that I have. If Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to Christians saying that they need to avoid foolish controversies, imagine what he would write after reading our Facebook pages. Vody Bauckham likes to say, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Guys, I have never seen a person change their mind based on a Facebook argument. Maybe they have. I've just never seen it. 99.999% of the time, I've done the math, um, Facebook arguments are a foolish controversy. Getting all spun up and ranting and raving on social media about whatever it might be is a foolish controversy. It's a waste of time and a waste of energy that just gets you worked up, gets other people worked up, and makes Christians look petty to the watching world. Let me encourage you guys. Am I anti-social media? No, but I am anti-arguing and foolish controversies on social media because I think it breeds quarrels, as he says. So that's one place where it often takes place. 
What about subject matter? I want you to notice something in this text. He says, genealogies and quarrels about the law. Now, let me ask you, where do you find genealogies and the law? The Bible, right? The Old Testament. Here's what's fascinating. Even biblical things can become foolish controversies, according to Paul. Even things that are not wrong in and of themselves to talk about can become foolish controversies when they are unprofitable and worthless. And here's what I've observed. It's possible for even biblical discussions for us as Christians to become foolish controversies when they take the focus away from the main thing and they become unnecessarily divisive. Because again, look at verse 10. He says, as for a person who stirs up division, that's his concern, that they would be divided over foolish controversies. Now, I'm not saying never talk about controversial topics. We can and we should. Every word of God matters, right? We should talk about these things. But this is what I am saying. We must be very careful in the church when we're having conversations with other believers about what we could consider to be minor biblical doctrines. That is doctrines that don't get to the heart of the gospel, that they don't become foolish controversies. What's the difference between a healthy biblical discussion and a foolish controversy? Let me give you two things. Heart posture and motive. First is heart posture. Is this coming from a place of pride where I want to display how smart I am? Is this coming from a place of anger or bitterness or resentment toward others? Or is this coming from a legitimate, healthy, I love you and I want to grow in my knowledge together with you about this? And it also has to do with motive. It has to do with motive. Why are we talking about this? Is it so that we can grow together in our faith by studying the word of God or some other reason? So we must avoid foolish controversies. But the next thing he shows us is exercise church discipline. Exercise church discipline. Look at verses 10 and 11. He said, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When Paul says to remove a person who is causing division in the church, and then he gives this little process of once, then twice, then have nothing to do with them, my mind immediately goes to Matthew 18, right? The passage where Jesus laid out for us the church discipline process. Let me show it to you. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At Coastal Church, within our membership, we exercise church discipline. And we believe that it's a mandate that we have from the word of God. It's something that we take very, very seriously. And here's why. Because God is deeply concerned with the purity and the unity of the church. First Corinthians talks about sin that can disrupt the purity of the church and how that must be disciplined. But Titus here in chapter three is talking about sin that threatens the unity of the church. He said, as for one who stirs up division in the church. So we must take this seriously. One of our core values at Coastal is accountability. This is one of the ways that we hold one another accountable as brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the main point of all of this, everything I've just said. We need to passionately avoid anything that would be a distraction to our mission 
And what's our mission? To make authentic followers of Jesus Christ and to avoid division in our church family. We live out the gospel by keeping the main thing the main thing. So with this, I'd like to invite up both the worship and the prayer teams. But I'd like to leave you with a final thought here as they're coming forward and we're gonna close our time together today. We've talked today about what it looks like to live out the gospel through being devoted to good works. And I'd like to close by asking you the question, what are the good works that you believe that God is calling you to as a follower of Christ? As we've been talking about this, maybe there's a sin that God has brought conviction into your heart about. A good work is repentance, to turn from that and to turn to Christ. Maybe there's a step of obedience that you feel that the Lord is take, calling on you to take, like getting baptized or sharing the gospel with someone or whatever it might be. I'd encourage you to take that step, but I'd like to get even a little bit more specific. At Coastal Church, what are the good works that we call on followers of Christ to do? I'd like to every now and then remind us of our strategy. How do we make disciples here at Coastal? These are the good works that we have to follow. One is to connect with God in corporate worship, to faithfully be a part of corporate worship every Sunday. Let me encourage you. I know summer's coming to a close. It's Labor Day weekend and then school's starting back up and we're getting back into our rhythm. Let me encourage you. Make sure that you and your family are making this a priority in your life, that you're regularly a part of corporate worship. Next, we've already talked about it, but growing together in community through small groups. All of the things that we've talked about are best done in community with a small group, with a group of people that are linking arms with us that we can grow together in our faith. Make sure that you get in a small group and that we're growing together. The next is serving in a ministry or in a mission. And maybe as you're sitting here, you feel like God is calling you to serve. And let me tell you, I talk to all of our ministry leaders on a regular basis and not one of them says, I've got plenty of volunteers, don't need any more. Not one of them. Guys, especially in this new building, we need more volunteers in every ministry. Please don't sit on the sidelines. God has given you a gift to edify this church body. Use it. Get plugged into a ministry or a mission. And then finally, maybe you're doing all three of those things. That's why we added the word multiply. Because what do we do when we're doing all of these things? We show someone else how to do it. We make disciples who make disciples who make disciples so that the kingdom of God continues to multiply. Find someone that you can invest in, that you can spend time with, that the kingdom of God might continue to grow. That is what it will look like if we are a gospel-shaped church a church that is continuing to live out the gospel day by day. It's my hope and prayer that that would be true of Coastal Gloucester as we go forward together. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we're so grateful for who you are. Lord, I'm so grateful that the words, but God can be declared true of so many of us. Lord, that we were once lost, foolish, disobedient, but you intervened and rescued us when we were running far from you. Lord, we're so grateful for you. We pray that as we go from this place, you would help us to live out the gospel, to be devoted to pursuing the good works that you have in store for us. Lord, we ask your blessing on us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.